Hello and welcome to Faithfully Memphis. I am Father Gary Mead, the Interim Dean of St. Mary's Episcopal Cathedral in Memphis, Tennessee. Every Thursday at 8 a.m., WIXR 91.7 FM in Memphis welcomes Bishop Phoebe Rofe and others associated with the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee for conversations about leaders in the faith, past. This morning I want to talk to you about a little-known saint of the church who lived 1,600 years ago. And then I'll be introducing our guests here to discuss their ministry with Saint Saint Vic. Sorry, let me try that again. Saint Vincent's Center for Children with Disabilities in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The saint I want to share with you this morning is known as Melania the Elder. And June 8th, today, is the day in the Episcopal Church when we remember and celebrate her life. She was born in Spain in the year 341 barely three centuries after Jesus preached and healed and taught in ancient Israel. The daughter of Roman aristocrats, Melania knew a life of privilege and plenty. After her marriage, she and her family moved to Rome with plans to raise children in a Roman empire that only recently had declared itself to be a Christian empire. But tragedy struck, and Melania lost not only her husband, but also all of her children but one. In her grief, she pondered and prayed. How would she respond? How would she live? What would she do? Where would she go? Remaining in Rome? That was just too painful. So Melania traveled. First, she journeyed to Alexandria in distant Africa. While there, she used the blessings of her wealth to support monks, nuns, teachers, and pilgrims. And Melania listened and she studied, and she learned. Later, Melania made her way to Palestine, where she would settle and live for most of the remainder of her life. Here she founded not one but two monasteries on the Mount of Olives, just east of the old city of Jerusalem. Under Melania's direction, these monastic communities, well, they did not exist in splendid isolation, remote and untouched by the world around them, not at all. Instead, inspired by their founder and leader, the monks and nuns welcomed the many pilgrims who traveled to Jerusalem, who arrived to visit and pray at the sites of Christ's death and resurrection, but who needed a place to rest and to be safe. For pilgrimage was a risky venture in those days, and Melania's hospitality was important for the pilgrims, especially for women who were particularly vulnerable. Today we remember Melania as a woman of faith, who lived her faith in her ministry, in her care for others, and how she offered help in so many ways to so many people. In 2005, a group from the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee entered a partnership to support and care for children with disabilities in Haiti. To discuss this important work, we are joined today by my friends, Dr. Susan Nelson and the Reverend Drew Woodruff, deacon in the Episcopal Church. Now, these two folks, they know a thing or two about helping others, not just here in Memphis, but also, as I said, in the Caribbean nation of Haiti. Well, good morning. Welcome to Faithfully Memphis. How are you guys today? We're doing good. great, Gary. Thanks. Good to have you with us. So uh, I'm going to start with you, Drew. Tell us, how did the West Tennessee-Haiti Partnership get started? Well, Father Joe Porter, who was my spiritual advisor, and Father Bill Squire, they were seminary roommates at Sewanee. 
and Father Bill had lived and ran St. Vincent's Center for Handicapped Children for two years. And he'd been working on Joe Porter to go down there, and Joe was reluctant at first. And over many years of asking him, he finally organized a group of which I attended in 2005. We were basically just sightseeing, for I had never been to what is euphemistically called a third world country, where abject poverty was on every corner that we saw. Unfortunately, we couldn't return due to political upheaval from 2006 to 2008. The president at that time, Aristide, a Roman Catholic priest, was asked to resign. I'd been working on Susan for, for quite a few years, uh, talking to her about Haiti, and she organized our first medical mission with five people, two of which now are doctors in the U.S. That's something to be really proud of. That sounds great. Let me ask you something. So why, why Dr. Susan Nelson in particular? Because we were good friends at St. Mary's Cathedral. And I knew she would, had been working with poor and underprivileged people here in Memphis at Church Health Center. And, and tell us a little bit more about St. Vincent's Center. What, what is it that the work they do and, and what skills did they need uh, that Dr. Nelson and others could bring? Well, basically, I'll let her talk about the medical needs, but people don't know that the Episcopal Diocese of Haiti is the largest diocese in the U.S. Church. They don't know that they are attached to the U.S. Church and under the guidance of the presiding bishop. But there is a pre there has been a presence of Episcopal nuns in Haiti for many, many years. And so Sister Joan Margaret of the Sisters of St. Margaret in Boston in 1945 started a ministry under a tree that still happens to be standing where it was originally planted with two kids with severe handicaps. It is now the premier institution for the care and education and nurturing of children, some with severe physical handicaps, some are blind, some are deaf or both, some are born without arms or legs or both. Wow, that is a, that's quite a, a ministry then. That's, that's powerful stuff. So, Susan, let me ask you, how did, it sounds like you were kind of drafted into this. Yes, well, Drew asked me and asked me to go, and I thought, I don't want to go to Haiti. I don't got time for that, because I know what's going to happen when I go to Haiti. I'm going to get all involved, and I just, you know, I just don't have time for that. So, but he kept asking, and he convinced me finally to go. And as he said, the, um, the first time I went, well, first time I went was with Bishop Johnson, Bishop Don Johnson, and four or five other people, and that was my very first trip. The second trip, I took the medical team that he talks about, but the first trip, I I remember going down there and thinking, there, what can I do? Because there's, you're just assaulted, as Drew likes to describe, when as soon as you get off the plane, you just know that this is, you know, it's a different place, and piles of people and bright colors and and smells and uh, if anybody have ever seen that movie the marigold hotel that it's that's what it's like that first experience anyway and then you think what can i possibly do that matters in this place but then i went to the school where they have children and i thought okay i'm a family doctor that i can do i can come and do checkups on the kids so that was my inspiration to get started and tell us about the kids. What was your, 
for one thing, people may not know this. We think about Caribbean nations, and, and anybody who's been on a cruise know that everybody in the Caribbean speaks English. Well, that's not true, certainly not in Haiti. How do you communicate with the children and the, the teachers and the staff at St. Vincent's? Well, it's fascinating, actually, because they speak French and Creole. Um, there's a little bit of English, not very much. The Dominican Republic is right next door, so there's some Spanish. So, for example, one clinic morning, we would have a translator at the door talk to someone from the translator would speak French or Creole, who then would speak to a teacher from the school who spoke Spanish. She would spoke to me, speak to me because I speak Spanish. And then I would speak back to the teacher, and then she would speak to the patient. So all of this is going on. And then you throw in sign language because a, a good portion, maybe a third of the kids are deaf, and they're versed in sign, American sign. It took my, me several years to convince my friend Sherry Fairbanks to go with me because she's an interpreter for the deaf. And she kept saying, what sign language? I'm thinking, it's sign language, and it's not all the same. Guess what? Did you know there's French sign language, American sign language? Anyway, because Sister Joan Margaret was from Boston, she taught the kids American sign language. So all of that is going on for communication. I, in my 10 or so years of going there, I learned to speak Creole about like a three-year-old. Like I can say, open door key. And they will say, would you like me to open the door for you, Dr. Nelson? Yes, please. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Did you, Drew, what kind of relationships did you build or have you built with the, the children at St. Vincent's? Well, uh, <laughs> since I was not medically trained, uh, I left that to the experts. I would go upstairs and sit with these children and just give them some attention. There would be one caregiver up there during the day and... Uh, I would sit, and I found out they're fascinated with dry erase boards. And with the big crayons, because some of the kids had, their hands were deformed, and they couldn't clutch a pencil or a pen. So I would buy these big dry erase crayons and sit there for hours and let them dry, and I'd erase it, and they'd draw something else, and I'd erase it, and just have a load of fun. We would sing silly songs joke around. I would eat the same food when when they got fed lunch. I would eat the food that they were eating. I would feed some of the kids that couldn't feed themselves. It was just a blessing to me to be around these kids that didn't get a lot of attention because there were so many of them upstairs. It was, Of course, it was boiling hot up there, and I would look like a wet rag by the end of the day. But at the end of the day, they would have to shout at me to come downstairs. We're going back to the where we were, happened to be staying at that time. And I would hate leaving those children behind. We also learned not to give our lunches to Drew. So we would take <laughs> our own lunches. from. We would stay at a guest house, and then the guest house would help us pack lunches, or we would bring trail mix and granola bars and things that we'd brought in our suitcase. We learned not to give the lunches to Drew because then they would be gone. Like, Drew, where's the lunches? Uh... <laughs> Gee, I guess I gave those to the kids. So that was a real do not give the lunches to Drew. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Now, the, the problem with radio, of course, is that we can hear your voices, but what I can see in the studio is just the incredible smile on your face, Drew, as you, as you call upon those memories, as you think about those kids. It seems like really, it, I mean, you're, you're dealing with kids who are in the worst, worst of situations in so many ways, and yet you describe this with such joy. Well, they... A lot of the 
Haiti is a predominantly Catholic country, so they have large families. But if one of the children happens to be born with some physical challenges, they would abandon them on a street corner or bring them to St. Vincent's and leave them in the bathroom, and we would find the children. These are children that were ostracized because of their physical deformities. It's a somewhat primitive beliefs in that if a child was born with a, a challenge, they somehow their parents had done wrong or they a baby had done wrong and they would take them to St. Vincent's because they know once they got them there, they would be cared for to the best of their ability to feed and clothe and educate these children. And it's the, it was the only hope for them. There's a story about a, a baby Margaret who we were there once having breakfast and um, the um, someone said, I think there's a baby downstairs. And so we all went down there and sure enough, there was a baby about uh, maybe six months old. She looked like she had hydrocephalus, which is basically swollen brain, clearly a brain deformity, but beautifully dressed, immaculate, clean, and she, someone had brought her there. And I used to think, well, how terrible is that? But if you think about how hard it is to raise a child <clears throat> with special needs, how many resources that takes. And then you do that in a country where you can't feed your family as it is. And there's a place that you know will take good care of this child. So we took in this baby. And we, the Haitian staff there named her Margaret after Sister Joan Margaret. Her name was Margaret Vincent. So whenever the kids had the last name Vincent, you knew that they were orphans. And uh, we had a baptism. The priest there, we had a baptism in French and in English. And my son Adam was there, and he played the guitar. And it was just, I mean, experiences like that are once in a lifetime, just incredible. And what I also want to say about baby Margaret is that she grew to be about eight years old. Um, every time we went to visit, th this is a child who could not sit up on her own, who could not feed herself. Um, mostly paralyzed. She never had any skin conditions. She never had any what we call bed sores. She was in excellent health considering what she started with, which attests to the compassion and diligence of the people in Haiti. Because we would only go there one week, twice a year. It wasn't because of the Americans that this child did so well. It was because of the people that loved her and took care of her, which was just stunning to me. Oh, what a beautiful story. Yeah. So, Susan, when you went down, what, what health conditions did you encounter? Uh, what were the challenges that, that you faced? So many of the kids are in wheelchairs or have mobility issues, and so a lot they have some skin issues, as you can imagine, with skin rubbing together. There's a lot of respiratory stuff um, and a lot of anemia. So we finally, my first trip, I only, I had six people. I didn't know what I was doing. I just went into my medical office one day and said, who wants to go with me to Haiti? And fortunately, several people said yes. Um, but as we went twice a year over the next 10, 12 years, we finally figured out, okay, let's take a machine down there to check the kids for anemia. Well, guess what? They're all anemic. And so, <clears throat> forgive the medical jargon, but a normal hemoglobin for a kid is maybe 11 or 12. Well, these kids, their hemoglobin was 6, 5. 
if you saw a kid with a hemoglobin of six in the U.S., you'd put him in the hospital. Well, after the 32nd kid that has the, this problem, you realize, okay, so, and it was all nutritional. You know, in America, we're thinking, oh, they have some disorder of formation of the blood cells. Nope, it was all nutritional. So initially, we would take vitamins down, large suitcases full of children's multivitamins with iron. I was very specific when people asked how they could help, right? And we would count out, for every kid, we would count out 30 pills in a Ziploc bag. This is what the group would do at the end of the day. Well, finally, my friend John Mutant said, you know, why don't we just bring enough vitamins that every kid can have a vitamin every day and the school nurse can give them out? Well, what a concept. And so after a year or two of doing that, guess what? The hemoglobins are now 9, 10, 11, except for the teenage girls. Because the teenage girls would say, I promise you, I don't like those vitamins. They make me fat. Oh, <laughs> really? Yes. Oh, so that God. is universal. So. Amazing. So what challenges did you have? I mean, you're, you're, you're used to certain resources available to you here in the United States. You go to Haiti, a developing nation, without the resources you're used to. You can't just go to Walgreens and pick up more you know, vitamins with, with iron for kids. I mean... What were, the, what were those challenges like, and, and how, did that, how did you overcome? Were there other challenges you had to figure out and, and overcome? The biggest challenge was language. Now, we had some of the teachers that could translate for us, and we, the, the older kids, so there's teenagers, the older kids that would translate also with sign. We needed translators for that. That was probably the biggest challenge, honestly. Um, but we initially would buy medicine. There's there's a, a shout out to Crosslink Memphis, which is a, a organization here that takes donated medicines and will sell them to people that are doing uh, international medical work. I hesitate to say mission work because mission implies that you're taking Jesus to Haiti and Jesus is alive and well in Haiti. So I changed our language to say medical service teams. So our teams would take the medicines with us Gradually, as we got to know the area, we found a local pharmacy, and we would buy 90% of what we needed from the local pharmacy because we're supporting the local economy. If someone needs a refill, they can go get it at the local pharmacy. And guess what? The labels are printed in their language. See, things that you just don't think about as the Americans that go in thinking, you know, we're the almighty Savior. I, that's the biggest lesson I learned in Haiti was the resources are there. Jesus is alive and well. I'm just, just maybe nudge it a little bit towards, you know, helping someone. And surprisingly, the medicine is cheaper in Haiti than it is divided here in the States. Oh, yes. Antibiotics are much cheaper, of course. Mm. And, yeah. and we would wind up not only treating the kids. So there's about 200 kids. And in four or five days, we would see all 200 kids. We'd see a classroom at a time, be a joyful chaos. And we would treat the adults, the staff. And I asked a man one time, I'd been going there several years, so who's your doctor? And he looks at me and he says, you're my doctor. Because guess what? I see him every six months. I don't see my doctor every six months. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. So. Now, Drew, Susan just used the word mission and, and said, you know, you, you wanted to steer away from that language because of uh, the connotation that sometimes comes with that word. And yet what, what you're doing was mission-oriented. I mean, you were there on behalf of or as part of the Episcopal Church. So there is a, certainly a faith-related element to all of this. How did that, uh, how did that inform what you were doing and, and what you did 
uh, with the children in, in at St. Vincent's? Well, they have a, a, a full-time Episcopal priest technically is in charge of St. Vincent's, and we've gone through several priests over our time going down there. So they do have Mass on a regular basis. They particularly celebrate International Day of the Handicapped, and that's a big deal for those kids down there. there there's parties, and uh, the bishop does come by there and visit from time to time to make sure things are going like he hopes they are. Uh, but they don't need people coming down there teaching them about Jesus. There's a church on every corner. Some of them are just lean-tos, but they're churches nonetheless. And they, ha they have a, a large cathedral there that they lost during the earthquake, but they have a, uh, a tin-roofed tin cathedral now where everybody goes to worship every Sunday. Well, that sounds wonderful. It's like you, you mentioned the, the cathedral which collapsed. I remember seeing pictures of, of some of that. And uh, sort of brings me to the next question for you all, which is to talk about, I know that on January 12, 2010, there was this massive earthquake measured, what, 7.0 on the Richter scale, um, hit the island of Hispaniola, the nation of Haiti. Um, and the epicenter was about 15 miles southwest of the capital city of Port-au-Prince, right? So the, the devastation of that must have been just outrageous. I mean, how, how was Haiti, in your view, um, and not just what we might recall from, you know, years ago on the TV reports, but how was Haiti affected by this disaster, in particular the students, the teachers, the, the staff at St. Well, Vincent's? Uh, two staff and five children died when a wall collapsed on them. And uh, the bishop asked us not to go down there immediately like we wanted to if we could have flown into the Dominican Republic and taken a bus over to Haiti because the airport was destroyed too. And uh, but, you, but you were asked not to go down immediately? Why, yes. why, why was that? They thought it wouldn't be safe for us. And they've always looked after our safety and let us know when things weren't safe uh, for uh, Americans to come down. Now that didn't keep Bill Squire, who I mentioned earlier, he, he flew into Dominican Republic with money in his boot and took a bus ride or a truck ride over to Port-au-Prince and showed up at the bishop's office. And it, the bishop's office wasn't destroyed during the earthquake. And he walked up to the office and they said, hey, Bill Squire's here to see you with money. But it's funny, too, a story that doesn't get told much anymore is we had a food packing event. Uh, we packed, what, 100, no, 300,000 meals in these little plastic bags and shipped it down there. And it was stuck in customs. Uh, like everything that goes down to Haiti, it has to go through customs. And uh, I went down with a check from Grace St. Luke's to, to pay, to give to Father Saturnie, who was the priest in charge at the time. And... Uh, the food was stuck there. They were demanding, the customs officials were demanding money from us. So I said, you take this check, change the pay to whoever you want, give it to them so we can get that food out. 150,000 meals we got off the customs and took it to the bishop's compound and stored it there. And then the earthquake hit and they fed all the people, left their houses because the house, a lot of the houses had collapsed. They went to the bishop's compound where there was a soccer field and the nuns took that food and fed 30, 
fed 3,000 people for many weeks with that food that we had sent down there. And if we had, we had taken it to St. Vincent's, it had been stolen when the wall collapsed because everything that wasn't nailed down was basically taken from the school. Hmm. What a story. What a story. So how involved were you, were you, were you uh, Susan, in packing the food and organizing all of that? So that was, there are people listening, I bet, who will remember. It was at Holy Communion. We did a couple years in a row. and we, it, Yeah, so the, it, it was a big deal. We learned one of the lessons we learned. Um, one of the priests sat me down after we had struggled so hard to get it down there and paid to get it off the dock and all of that. He said, you know, for that kind of money that we spent, if you give that to me, I can buy twice as much food and pay somebody here to cook it and you know just learning about helping a community and helping activate their resources my son adam's very involved in this in memphis community has assets and resources if you help them activate it rather than come in with what you think is the solution which is often not the solution and Maybe but counterproductive. It, but so. isn't that quite often the response? We, we as, as Christians, we say, well, here's a need. Here's We think what the need is, and, and we think we're clever and faithful, and we're going we're gonna to identify the, the solution. But oftentimes what we come up with isn't nearly as effective as what the people really need. Exactly. Another story I want to tell about the, the earthquake is that my daughter, Sienna, came in December of 2009, we had a huge team. Now, remember, the earthquake is 2010. December 2009, she brought a little portable um, camera. This is, if you can imagine, even 2009, we didn't all have cell phone cameras then. So she wanted to make a picture, a photo of every kid, because she said, Mom, that's not the kid with one leg. That kid has a name. Mm-hmm. Right? right? She was 16. She gave me that wisdom. So. We, she went to every classroom and, by golly, got a picture of every kid and the names, the Haitian names. And I promise the Haitians sometimes have two different names depending on what day it is. They would tell me this and they would laugh. They thought it was funny. Anyway, we made a photo album with uh, all of these kids and some of the staff in it. Well, then here comes January 12, 2010, and we don't know who has survived and who has not. So in April... When we all finally got permission to go back down there, on the last day, the kids had moved out of Port-au-Prince, which was just a death pit. There were 250,000 people that died in this earthquake. It was horrible. So they had moved to old seminary grounds up the coast where they were staying. And I sat with one of the teachers, Marie Carmel, or she was a cook, actually. And I said, okay, you got to tell me what's happened. So we sat under a tree by the coast and went through the album and she told me okay this person is okay or this person went with family or this person didn't make it never forget that oh wow yeah once the uh, stairs collapsed it they had two compounds in Port-au-Prince one was right across the street from the from the national prison and the other where the girls and the young children stayed and the wall collapsed in that compound and the stairs had collapsed, and one of the guys had managed to get up there and let the children down to the ground in baskets. And he became a real hero to everybody. I, I forget his name, but we all called him hero every time we saw Mr. him. Mr. Noel. Mr. Was Noel. His name. Yes. And uh, it was tragic. Uh, every other building in the Port au Prince, which is a huge city, um, was destroyed. 
They had red paint painted on the doors. People were still buried when we got there in April and they were trying to recover the bodies with hammers and chisels. They didn't have air hammers. They didn't have air compressors or anything like that. And remember, it's boiling hot out there in April and bodies were left in the curb once they found them and, and dump trucks would come by and take them out to this huge place outside of the city and bury them in mass. And we could have gone and visited there, but it was just too heartbreaking to go and see. See, we drove right by going to Moe, which is about an hour up the coast where the sem old seminary used to be. And uh, now, fortunately, they are not much in Port-au-Prince presence. They have a place in, out in the suburbs on Sa Santos 17, which a kind lady from New York donated a million and a half dollars to build, uh, redesign this house that was in this compound that's on about four acres. And there's another story about what happened there, and I'll let Susan tell that. Oh, I'm sorry, you about lost the, me. Which story? About the uh, folk, the gangs camping out in the back of the compound. Oh, right. So speaking of, uh, I think you were going to get to this at some point, Gary, about what's happening now. One of the challenges, the reason we haven't been since 2018, which makes me very sad, because you can see that these folks were like family. We visited them on a regular basis. Anyway. Yeah, going down twice a year, you, you must have formed some really strong relationships absolutely. with staff absolutely. and children alike, I would absolutely, think. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so because of lots of things, the pandemic and then um, – gangs controlling the roads we haven't been down there and the this area that drew described has a concrete wall around the perimeter the back of the property and apparently the the a gang came and just knocked down the wall and was squatting back there and the priest in charge Père devoe uh blessed soul that he is he went back there now Père devoe is probably in his 60s and he's a small person um you know, five and a half feet tall, maybe, goes back there and says, you can't be here. And the gang said, well, you know, prove it. How do we know this is your property? We can be here if we want. So he says, fine. So he goes downtown to the government buildings. Now, some of the government officials, not all things go legally as you would hope. But at any rate, he managed to show them the property and the deed and they stamped the approval, so then he goes back to the gangs and says, yes, you, you have to leave, and they did. Wow. <laughs> and, I, he, and I said, Père DeVoe, how did you stand down these angry people with guns? And he says, well, I am a man of the cloth. <laughs> with his little collar, he stands out there, and they leave, and then he has the concrete wall rebuilt and paints in giant bright letters in in uh Ecole Ecole Handicap uh Saint Vincent, you know, the school for Saint Vincent's for handicapped children. And the gangs were gone. Okay. That's amazing. Of course now that's I mean you, you describe this culture as being much more religiously and faithfully oriented than than American culture seems to be today. Um that must have made a big difference in how you were able to interact with people and, and which is one of the joys, excuse me for interrupting, but when we had this baptism I mentioned to you, baby Margaret, that was during Advent. And so, right, in God with us, right, mm -hmm. Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. So 
when we came back to the, the U.S., the first stop is the Miami airport, and you order whatever you order, Coke or a hamburger or something, and they'll say, Merry Christmas. And you're thinking, wait, what? Just very jarring, right? The focus is the cart before the horse, you might say. Yeah. So. It's quite a culture shock to come back uh, after being a week there and and adjusting back to what all we have. And, you know, it's a funny story uh, that happened at St. Mary's. Every once in a while, we would drag out all our Haiti stuff and display it. And our some of our unsheltered or marginally sheltered people would see it on Saturday or Sunday and and say, well, don't they have food stamps there? Don't they have welfare? And I said, are you insane? <laughs> they, they, the average Haitian family, I think, gets one meal every other day. That's amazing. And there was another story where uh, the uh, interpreter uh, came John and told Robert. you his daughter was sick. Oh, his son, yes. His so son. this was, yes. So John Robert, who was amazing man, spoke four languages, English, Spanish, five languages, French, Creole, and sign. He was sort of an ombudsman at the school. He just did everything. Opened up the school in the morning and made sure the kids were where they were supposed to be and also taught me a lot of the Creole that I know. So we had been working there maybe the third day, and John Robert said, someone came to him and said, your wife says your son is sick. Well, of course, so we drop everything, and we pack up. I had a nurse with me. Uh, we pack up our little bag of whatever we thought we might need, and Drew came with us, yes, and so we walk, you know, to his house, maybe a block and a half away, and his house is, it's a room that's maybe, it's not as big as your office is now, Gary, mm -hmm. so maybe... 15 feet by 20 feet there are three or four bunk beds that's the house it's concrete it's boiling hot you go through the door to the outside there's a little yard where Sonia would cook so and it's dark because they have no electricity I mean it's daytime but still the light doesn't penetrate very much so here's this young man 15 16 lying on the floor um and I check him out, and I'm thinking, what does he have, appendicitis? I'm trying to think of some terrible thing he has. Basically, he's hungry because he hasn't eaten in two days. Oh, and he's goodness. 16 years old. So Drew, having brought, you know, the lunches, as I said, right? Well, here you go. I mean, so. Yeah. We have isn't peanut, butter and peanut butter and jelly sandwich, sandwiches. man. <laughs> well, come on. I'm in my 60s. I still like a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? But 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 a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to us is is nothing. I mean that's that's inexpensive. It's easy. It's cheap. It's available. But in in that environment in Haiti, I mean that would be seen very very differently. I would imagine. I mean what we take what we consider to be lack or want for them might be seen as plenty. Absolutely. So one of the blessings of the school is that. Um, the kids get a hot meal every day, yes. and they may not get that at home. And also, in an observation that I made was when we would go, we would go in the fall and the spring, usually October and maybe March. In October, I would go, school started in September, the anemia was much worse. 
than in the spring. Well, guess what? Because the kids are getting vitamins when they're at school, you see. If you go in the fall, they've been home all summer. Because most of the kids, the stories that we have told about the residents, there's probably 20 or 30 of the kids that live there. But the rest of the 200 students are day students. Their families bring them there every day. So when they're home all summer, they didn't get as good nutrition and they're more anemic in the fall. Interesting. Mm. Mm. And St. Vincent's graduates some, I mean, they, they're, they're, they have a good music education. They, they go through the eighth grade. And so the kids go on to high school and some college. We have um, several kids that, because we've had this relationship for years, that we're still in communication with that are now in college. I know one kid who, uh, kid, young man, sorry, who's now in medical school. He was not handicapped, but his mother was a cook at the school, and his younger brother and his mother and his younger brother were killed in the earthquake. Oh, my. And so his family went to the priest at the time and said, we cannot afford to educate this boy. And so the priest said to Mackinson, if you study and keep your grades up, I'll see that you get an education. Wow. And that was 2010, and now it's 2023, and he's in his fourth or fifth year of medical school. Now, you can imagine going to medical school in a country where sometimes you can't go out that day because the roads are bad and the gangs are in control and you just stay home. Or did you know they had a, um, a small earthquake in Jeremy yesterday and the hospital flooded that he works at, and they lost all their supplies? So... How do you, right? Yeah, it sounds yet, like it, it, those odds sound almost insurmountable. It's they certainly do. challenges sound immense. They do, but the hope and the joy that we find, can you not hear it in our voice? Oh, the absolutely, The hope and the yes. joy that we find down there is, it's the joy of the grace of God. It is, the gospel is right there in front of yes. you, in front of your face every, every minute, so. Yes, we call that our cathedral for children because they'll probably never rebuild the cathedral of Holy Trinity in Port-au-Prince. It's just cost too much money. Mm. Well, but the cathedral is not the building, yes? Yeah, Would right. you say it's that? Exactly Dean Gary, yeah, we, Dean of the we, cathedral? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, speaking you know. of it, since our cathedral is in the end stages of a massive renovation project, you yes. know, I'm reminded that yes. yes, we're spending a lot of money to renovate the building, but the point of it is not so we have a better building, so we have a better starting point for all the ministry we need to do with each other right. in, in our community. And it's the people that have held and it, it is together. the people that, that yes. do all that. Exactly. But I would also say, as much as you all talk about, you know, finding Jesus present and, and feeling the presence of God in, in the people and in the joy and everything, I, it would seem to me from what you're saying to me, uh, just my unexpert opinion, just listening to you speak about this and with the, the joy you speak in your heart, that you brought Christ with you as well. That in you, it seems to me that the children and the parents and the teachers and staff. I mean, here, here are people who, who left a much more comfortable life to come down, oh, not just for a couple of days, but for a week, and not just once, but, you know, twice About a year. About 25 times, yes, yeah. actually. Yeah. To, to, to bring, you know, yeah. suitcases of, of vitamins until you figured out a better way, to, to, to give away your lunch to somebody else, Drew, because, you know, they were hungry and you'd be all right. But, but you modeled for them. You showed them the face of Christ in some powerful ways, and and that's just. I think that is so commendable, um, and I and I, I thank you for that. Thank you for that on their behalf. 
Uh, they're a proud people. They love their country. They sing their national anthem at St. Vincent's every morning before school started. And something most people don't know, Haiti was the only country ever to win their freedom. The slaves rebelled in eight, and won their freedom in 1800. And unfortunately, the French who had occupied Haiti and used them as slaves um, put a naval blockade on the island and blockaded the island where Haiti couldn't send out all their goods they were growing. And uh, they had to pay 50 million in gold, which the Haitians had to go to French banks and borrow the money to pay the reparations for the plantations so they could uh, ship their products out. Wow. So I, when I think of Haiti today, and I have, I have not been to Haiti, at least not properly to Haiti, um, and certainly never been to Port-au-Prince, but the image that comes to my mind is a place of, of extraordinary poverty, and at least by my American terms, and as I understand it, great, is there ongoing civil unrest right now, and what's going on in, in Haiti politically? Well, they, the president was assassinated, and uh, apparently some oligarchs had hired uh, some mercenaries to assassinate the president, and they haven't had an election since then. Uh, when, when did that happen? Uh, two years ago. Two I years believe. ago, mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, the U.S. government hasn't been most helpful in in restoring order. Uh, we did occupy Haiti in the '30s and actually built their White House, which looked a lot like the White House the president's in, and of course, it collapsed during the. Uh, earthquake also, but uh, we we haven't been the best friends to Haiti uh, over the long haul. I did say in the news that we're giving $50 million, we're sending that down. We've got a new ambassador to Haiti, and hopefully he can manage to get the money to the people that need it instead of the oligarchs who already have more money than they can ever spend. Because that's the cynic in me has to ask. I mean, if we're going to send millions and millions of dollars to a developing nation, you know, the cynic in me has to ask how much of that money is actually going to benefit the people who need it most. Well, and that isn't that always the question. And so two things I want to say. First, I want to get back to that Haiti is not all abject poverty, so help me remember that in a minute. But also, uh, when we would solicit donations to help support our work, what I would tell folks is... I don't know about all of Haiti. There's no way. I, You know, this is my, uh, the faith of Susan, right? I cannot, I'm not God, thank goodness. <laughs> I just have a little bit. I got what I have in my two hands, and God wants me to offer that. And so I can do that. I can go to this school and give medical care to these kids, and I can be a connection for them and an advocate in the U.S., to draw on resources to help them. And if you give me $100, whoever it is, I promise you I'm going to buy vitamins and it's going to go into that kid's mouth, right? So that it's a way of bringing a huge insurmountable problem down to a little bit that God gives me that I think that I can handle with my friend Drew and other it, folks. People have gone down there with the best of intentions they step outside the airport into that chaos outside the airport and they don't ever, ever leave the compound. They go back and get on the plane and go back to the United States. It's that overwhelming? It's people? that overwhelming, even at the airport. Yeah. And 
Uh, we've learned many lessons getting off the plane and going through the airport there about who to give your bags to. Oh, my. Now, Susan, you said something about about the uh, poverty in, with respect to Haiti. And, and that, I mean, I just offered a, an off-the-cuff observation or, or supposition, but what's the reality? Well, so Per Sidoni, who was the priest there for many years, told my daughter and me, if you've only seen Port-au-Prince, you haven't seen Haiti. So one year we took him up on that. So we went down with the medical team and stayed a week, and then we put all them back, put them all, all them, Memphis talk, all them back on the plane. And Sienna and I spent a week as tourists and went through, the, we flew up to Cap Haitian and we stayed on the coast. And Haiti is beautiful. I mean, it was the per, it is the Pearl of the Antilles, is what the French called. We stayed in a, um, beachside cabin with the view of the coast and a fish right out of the ocean and just incredible beauty. Um, The Dominicans like to vacation there because it's cheap and it's beautiful. It's a Caribbean island if you've been to the Caribbean. In fact, Royal Caribbean has a place called Labadee and it's in Haiti. Now, they don't tell you it's in Haiti because people have this uh, gut reaction to thinking, oh, Haiti. But it is a resort place, and it's as beautiful as any place. And I've been to Labadee, and, okay, and they do well, say it's Haiti, but I, but I understand that saying, saying that I've been to Labadee means I've been to Haiti is, is kind of misses the point. I mean, right. Because it is isolated, it is protected, it right. is, you yeah. know, it's, it's its own little thing. It's not representative of, of the real nation. The real well, people. so I don't understand why, you know, that Haiti has really not had much of a functioning government for two years, but for many years it's really been run by the elite, the well-to-do, we sort of recognize this this play, right? And the people that, that work and struggle don't really see the benefits. So I don't know the answer to all that, why the world is the way it is. I've had people come with me that question their faith after going to Haiti. I say, listen, Jesus is alive and well in Haiti. Jesus is in the heart of those children and the teachers who take care of them and took care of baby Margaret so she never had any skin problems and do all the hard work, we just sort of drop in for a week at a time and benefit from being immersed in that wonderful place. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, so we, we need to start wrapping this up here in a minute. Um, obviously, Haiti's been impacted by the earthquake, uh, by hurricanes. what's going on with the hurricanes, civil unrest. Obviously, COVID has, has had a, must have had a tremendous impact on your ability to, to visit and to support what they're doing. So where are we today? And and I'm assuming that St. Vincent's and the children of St. Vincent's need ongoing care and support. What can people do in this environment, in this context, in this moment, to support the work that you've been, been a part of for so many years? Well, so there is a governing board of St. Vincent's School that meets regularly with the priest and the administrators of the school and sends $25,000 a month down there. We continue to pay the teachers during the pandemic. We continue to fund, basically fund the operations of the school. Um, we don't, when I say we, I'm talking about West Tennessee Haiti Partnership, which is me and Drew and about six other people. All we do is we don't, we're not raising money to, for all of that because that's way beyond what we can do. There, There's a bigger group organization endowment that was established when Sister John Margaret died that runs the whole school. We just try to support with our little uh, fundraising in Memphis 
um, medical care. What does that look like right now? We're trying to pay for a doctor to go to, because I can't, we can't go down there. Well, there are doctors in Haiti, so can we pay a doctor to go one day a week and check on the kids? Um, can we help fund the nurse who's already there? Can we buy vitamins? Again, the kids haven't been getting vitamins for a couple of years just because of all the things that have happened. So the we physical wanted, therapist too. Yes, we have. Yes, they have a physical therapist there, and you'd think they would have had one all this time. They did not. Now they do, thanks to efforts of many, many people. Um, so that's the kind of things that we support. So what I would say is, um, for five dollars. $5 buys vitamins for all those kids for one day, for 200 kids for a day. So That yeah, sounds like a wonderful investment. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it's a very um, good deal. And on the other end of the spectrum, um, $650 pays for a kid for tuition, room and board for a year, meals, the whole thing. So that's pretty good, $650. You mm -hmm. consider what private school costs these days. So if I got $5 burning a hole in my pocket or $650 available mm -hmm. in my back bank account, how do I get it to you guys to support this work? So on there's a sort of complicated URL, which I can't really say on the radio, but um, or he, maybe he's going to help me. <laughs> you know, my, my dean is going to hand this to me. Okay. This is Emily, and we're going to put this link also in the show notes of uh, the podcast of Faithfully Memphis, so you can right. get easily there. Because uh, yeah. the link is somewhat complicated. It's WTN, as in West Tennessee, WTN Haiti Partnership, all one word, dot org. And that'd be the website. Right, and, and there's a posted. donate button. And yes, thank, thank you, uh, Reverend yes. Dean, for that. <laughs> so, yeah, I would commend you to, to look at that. And that gives you access to more information about what you, the, the work that you're doing. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. All right, so we've got to wrap this up here in the next uh, 60 seconds or so. Drew, anything else that you would like to add before, uh, we, before we wrap up? Well, I, believe it or not, I love St. Vincent Center. I love those kids uh, just like my own. And the concept of what they're doing there is just amazing considering the challenges the Haitian people face on a day-to-day -day basis just surviving. Um, and God bless them. That's all I can say about it. Wonderful. Susan, any final comments? You know, my life has been forever changed by this work in Haiti. Um, and I still am in contact. Thank goodness for WhatsApp. I'm in contact with lots of those kids who are now not kids anymore. But their messages to me are, how is your family? And, and they ask about my kids by name. And they are full of joy and hope. And so I try to carry that in my life every day here. Thank you for joining us this morning. I want to especially thank my friends Susan Nelson and Deacon Drew for blessing us with their time, their reflections, and their insights. To learn more about the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee, please look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Our website is edwtn.org. Past episodes of Faithfully Memphis may be found on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you find us, be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. This is Father Gary Mead for Faithfully Memphis. Until next time, God bless you. Stay safe and stay positive.